The Tom Woods Show, episode 1274. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, in school we got a sanitized, upside-down version of the history of the U.S. presidents. Well, I'm going to bring you the real history. Check it out at freehistorycourse.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Very interesting discovery has recently been made by my guest today, Phil Magnus, who is an economic historian who holds a Ph.D. from the School of Public Policy at George Mason University. I've had him on a couple of times before, but this is on a completely unrelated topic. He has uncovered two works of Lysander Spooner nobody has read in over 100 years and that we more or less assumed had been lost forever. And it's very interesting how he managed to track them down. We'll talk in a minute about who Lysander Spooner is, but let it suffice to say for the moment that he's a very significant figure in the history of libertarianism. So to stumble upon unknown works like this, well, this is uh, this is tremendous for all concerned. So I want to talk about those. We'll link to them uh, the way you can you can get them at uh, tomwoods.com slash 1274. But let's uh, let's dive right into this. Phil, welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Well, how about this? We very rarely get to have a treat like this, somebody whose work we assumed we knew and we had complete, and then we turn around and we have two substantial new essays. How is it possible that, did we just stumble across them somewhere? How did this happen? Yeah, it's been a uh, multi-year process of trying to track these down. So uh, when Spooner died, uh, his kind of protege and heir, Benjamin Tucker, the um, editor of Liberty Magazine, published an obituary of him that went through and outlined all of his major life works. And most of these were collected together and published in a uh, multi-volume series back in the 1970s. It was the Collected Works by Sander Spooner. But in Tucker's essay, he mentioned these two um, economic treatises that had been published around 1876 and 1877. The first one titled What is a Dollar? And the second one, which was an intentional uh, successor to that, called Financial Imposters. And yet they were nowhere to be found in any of his works. What was always assumed to have been the case is uh, so Tucker moved all of his print shop and materials into a bookstore that he purchased in New York City in the early 1900s. And in 1908, the bookstore caught fire and he lost the majority of his equipment, the majority of his collection. So it had always been assumed that Spooner's two uh, books or pamphlets had been in that material that uh, went up in flames. And as a result, they were always assumed to be lost. So what I did essentially was find original references to these two treatises in an old newspaper that was published in Boston in for only two years, 1876 to 77, called The New Age, which turned out to have serialized both of the pamphlets. So wow. Print, yeah. Yeah. Now, Thank that was the goodness first, they did that. First kind of breakthrough was discovering that this existed and – of course, the New Age is a very obscure publication. It only lasted a couple of years. There are very few complete sets of it in existence. So I had to piece together by going to, I think, three different libraries that contain partial collections of the New Age and then just went issue by issue by issue and found the whole essay. That is amazing. So, and, and this is not, uh, you know, a three-page 
newspaper article. I mean, when right. they serialize something, that means it's a longer work. So this book version of this new or new to us Spooner material is a, it's a real book length work. Yeah. It's 230 pages. So let's get to talking about it. Well, first of all, maybe you could say a little something about Spooner. I know that longtime libertarians are very familiar with his name, but not everybody is. Yeah. Yeah. So Lysander Spooner, he's a 19th century abolitionist, legal theorist, anarcho-capitalist, uh, and basically a pamphleteer. So he uh, has a body of work that covers across the 19th century, gets into political writing in the late 1830s, really jumps on board with the abolition movement. And that's kind of his thing until the Civil War. He's a, a radical instigator of anti-slavery. You'd put him maybe in the category of a John Brown type character where he is trying to uh, instigate a slave revolt in the South, basically on libertarian natural rights principles. So he's seen as a radical's radical, but uh, attains uh, nationwide acclaim and fame as one of the major contributors to the abolition movement um, until the Civil War. Then after the Civil War, he's actually so uh, unsettled by the way that it played out politically that he moves into anarchist constitutional theory, uh, which is a really interesting thing. He's starting to ask questions about the legitimacy and validity of the social contract that's always assumed underlie constitutional government. So for the rest of his life, he basically becomes a a theorist and pamphleteer of exploring uh, questions of state legitimacy and alternative institutions to it. Uh, But there's this one unifying theme across uh, Spooner's entire career from his early abolition phase to uh, his death is uh, he absolutely hates the government and views the government as the source of most of the social ills he's encountered. So government sanctioned slavery. Therefore, uh, he's making that kind of his target. That's his focus. But he gets later into his life, government sanctioned economic interventions. He views them as uh, an extension of the same mentality and a violation of the individual's natural rights in a very similar way. There's been a bit of a dispute about Spooner. Mm-hmm. Regarding his actual ideology, you called him an anarcho-capitalist, but that's where some people would dispute with you, or they'd say he's he's like one of the 19th century individualists in the tradition of Benjamin Tucker. Yeah. So he may have some socialist leanings here or there. What do you think about that? And do the works in this uh, new publication shed any light on this question? Yeah. So these two treatises are his most substantial things that he ever wrote on economics. By far, there are some other short pamphlets, and there's been debate in some of the literature whether to claim him as a libertarian or, as you say, claim him as a socialist. I think based on this work and based on a few other parallel uh, pieces of information we knew about him, we can conclusively reject the socialist claim to him. Uh, and I'll do it on, on one very clear basis, and that is Spooner asserts the inviolable primacy of private property rights. He sees that as the basis of an economy. Uh, You cannot have economic interaction without basic, fundamental, legally respected property rights. And this comes entirely out of Spooner's constitutional tradition. Remember, he's a legal thinker, first and foremost. So his economic ideas basically derive from the legal principle of the right to contract. You cannot have a right to contract unless you actually have ownership of uh, your own property, unless you actually have a stake in the game and a legal right to engage in that contract. So he's building up an entire economic system based on private property and contract around it. 
And that essentially becomes the inviolable thing that the state keeps coming in and intruding them on, taking improperly ordering people to uh, use their own private property in ways that uh, he would view as illegitimate. So what you find in Spooner is fundamentally the makings of a very core free market style property rights libertarian in the classical tradition. It's possible to write a work on competitive currency and banking and still not quite get all the economics just right or mm-hmm. to come to these conclusions on the basis of faulty assumptions and and so forth. And as you say, Spooner's not primarily an economist, so I'm not really right. – I'm grading on a curve here. Sure. But the <laughs> fact that he even wrote anything that you could plausibly put under that heading is, you know, a feather in his cap. What's your overall assessment of his work in this area? Is there any bit of it that you think is a little bit crankish or is it mostly okay? And so it's very idiosyncratic. It's uh, from that period in the late 19th century when the economics profession's in, in flux. So, for example, Spooner is not a theorist that has made his way into the marginal revolution. That would be the first divergence I would cite here. And if you think about the timing, so Carl Menger writes in 1871, this is 1876, that has not diffused into uh, the economics profession. He is also... I wouldn't say he's the most sophisticated when it comes to a um, cohesive theory of uh, monetary economics, although he does have some have some very interesting ideas about monetary policy and what he sees as some of the problems of his day. So a large part of this book is actually a response to government disruption and intrusion into monetary politics, uh, government actions that artificially expand credit or attempt to manipulate the ratio between gold and silver. So these are the big political issues of the 1870s. Uh, One in particular, the Panic of 1873, is kind of the instigator of what turns his attention to this. And uh, his great question is, can we attribute elements of instability in the financial system we see all around us to government action? And uh, his question or his answer to that question is absolutely yes. Uh, what we are seeing is artificial uh, currency constrictions that result from how banks process and take in cues that are coming from the federal government's attempt to essentially monopolize coinage. Ah, OK. Now, do you think his analysis here, of course, the general idea that government may be to blame may have some role in this. I've, I receive very sympathetically. Yes. Do you think he's, do you think he's, but do you think he's coming at this from the right point of view roughly? I, I'd say so based on the information he had around him and based on the, uh, the type of analysis that his intellectual circles in Boston are engaging in at this time. Uh, his monetary questions are a big thing. He, he's asking the question, one, why do business cycles occur? And number two, why do they almost always tend to harm the least well-off in society? So there is kind of a uh, a social element where he does very much care about the poor. But what he sees is the the problem here is the poor are being denied access to free and open credit. And the reason they're being denied access to free and open credit is because the government has monopolized the monetary system, which diffuses into banks and causes banks to be unwilling to contract freely and openly with poor people. So uh, he's basically seeing government monetary constraint and manipulation on the federal level is having the consequence of denying people the ability to enter into this great and wonderful competitive capitalistic system 
of free exchange, denying people to basically obtain credit on their own property to obtain a mortgage, for example. And he, he sees this as almost like a rent extraction that's occurring on behalf of the empowered political class that is basically screwing everybody else over. And it, it comes to its uh, greatest fruition, its worst uh, demonstrations when there's some structural uncertainty in the economy, such as a financial panic. So that's where he's seeing kind of the fruits of government uh, monetary manipulation inflicting their worst damage on the masses of society. And we see this in the 19th century over and over again. What what happens whenever there's a financial panic? The very first thing the banks do is they start suspending specie payment. And he sees this as a reaction to federal policy, but it's a reaction that has harms upon uh, most of society by denying them basic access to uh, mediums of exchange effectively. Well, so this sounds... I'm not really sure what to make of it, but is he critical of monetary overissue on the part of the banking system or is it because I'm not sure that's what I'm hearing? Right, right. I think there's an element of both. Uh, there's almost kind of a quasi early Milton Friedman-ish uh, monetarist type argument that he makes that it should actually be a mechanism to respond to depressions and recessions by loosening credit a bit. But he also sees Credit manipulation is in introducing distortions, structural distortions, economy-wide. So, uh, for example, uh, when the federal government devalues its currency, uh, he'd be absolutely horrified by this. I'd say the big driving mechanism, the thing that he says is the source of the problem, is these are not market decisions. Whatever you choose to do with your currency, these are not market decisions that are occurring. They're political decisions, and political decisions are subject to political manipulation by interests that are uh, engaged in politics basically for self-gain at the expense of uh, the public at large. I noticed that uh, Spooner makes some reference to the example of free banking in Scotland. And that's been a historical example that a number of free bankers have pointed to. Now, there's uh, some criticism of the Scottish example. Uh, yeah. Rothbard is pretty pretty tough on Larry White on Absolutely. using the example of Scotland. But, but all the same, it, it's been a source of discussion in libertarian circles for at least 30 years. Yeah. But now here's Spooner talking about it in the late 19th century. What's the point of raising the example? Yeah, so Spooner's whole thesis is that political manipulation of the monetary system introduces instability and it introduces what we would call today business cycle disruptions. So he's looking to history for examples that could potentially test this thesis he's laid out. And the one that he gravitates toward is the Scottish free banking period or what historians refer to as the Scottish free banking period. It lasts from just past 1700 to really 1844, 1845 is when it dissipates. And it's a um, historical period where banking institutions in Scotland are comparatively unregulated to uh, the Bank of England, to the, the, the English monarchies and English parliaments uh, central banking system, which was adopted effectively as a war finance measure. And what you have in, in Scotland rather is uh, – even though it is um, regulated, and this is always the Rothbardian critique, so it does uh, come under subject to, to state regulation, uh, the Scottish government at the time is much more fluid in granting multiple charters to – instead of having one single bank of Scotland, they have three chartered banks. And then simultaneous to that, you also have unchartered banks that are basically issuing their own script. They're issuing, issuing their own paper currencies 
on credits that are connected to what they retain in their own vaults. And Spooner's big point here is you can have either a monopolized system that's run through a central bank and regulated by a central bank, uh, which is what was going on in England, or you can have this comparatively diffuse, comparatively deregulated system that takes place in Scotland. And the latter is a mechanism to test competition between banking institutions, competition that plays out on the reputation of the bank itself. So if you do your banking with an unchartered bank in Scotland that is operating under a looser regulatory regime than England, that's on you. That's your choice. But uh, banks have a, an incentive to be competitive in the market to uh, adopt internal policies to self-regulate in ways that make them credible to their customers. So uh, it's basically introducing market forces into competitive banking. And Spooner sees this period. He does a deep historical study of it, goes back to uh, source testimonials on how Scottish free banking played out vis-a-vis the British system. And one of the big findings, the themes he keeps stressing is that every time there's a financial panic or period of uncertainty or recessionary, depressionary event in England, one thing keeps happening over and over, and that's the Bank of England, and therefore everything under the Bank of England suspends its specie payments. But he sees at the same time in Scotland, this is a much less likely event to occur. Or even if there is a species suspension, it's a, a shorter period. In other words, the in- individual competitive banks in Scotland are much more able to adjust to financial instability system-wide than what's going on in England at the time. And he sees this as proof of why we should deregulate the banking system, why we should get government further and further away from uh, this inclination towards central banking that he sees in his own time. So he's got this great historical example uh, that he teases out, and that's kind of the natural experiment of why he says his system will work. And his system involves, at least in part, the idea of competitive currencies. How does he envision that? So he is uh, almost free reign on that. Uh, He's basically of the idea that banking institutions – should be allowed in a completely unregulated system to issue their own coin or issue issue their own uh, slips of paper that are representative of an asset. And he says, of course, most banks are going to be building around what were traditional assets at that time, so silver and gold uh, holdings in their own vaults. And uh, this is the traditional play out that occurs in Scotland as well. It's chained to a uh, a metal as a, uh, a monetary base. But he also envisions, he says, you know, maybe there's going to be experimental banks that they issue uh, paper currencies that are backed by land or they're backed by some other real estate property holding or some other asset. Uh, and he, do- he doesn't really know. And he says it's not really our place as a government to uh, prescribe this onto a bank. That's really a, a process of market discovery itself. So if there's a uh, financial innovator who comes along and discovers a new way that they can link a piece of paper issuance that will be accepted and tradable in a market to, say, farmland that they hold out in the West, uh, for example. Well, he's he's like, let the market decide. People will see the value of that real estate holding, and they'll discover whether or not this is, in fact, a legitimate basis for this private currency that's been issued. Uh, So he has a very elaborate system of viewing the possibilities that should come up here. He doesn't really have one single one that he favors. It's rather let the market decide in the absence of monetary monopolization where you have a government that says only gold, this currency, and not only that, only gold, as set by the value 
that we have established through either our central bank or through uh, federal legislation and everything else is off limits. Does he have anything favorable to say about gold? Is he willing to say if the market chooses gold, he'd be at peace with that? Or is he anti-gold? Oh, he's absolutely. He's, he is absolutely accepting of the notion of gold. He just sees it as, as a too constrained definition of money. So he, he's favorable to gold. He views it as something that's historically valid. But he just questions the notion that the government has established gold through statutory primacy because he sees this as the government opening up its own opportunity. So once you establish gold as the only statutory uh, currency, so in Spooner's mind is that just means also that the government that's established it can come in and regulate it. And when they come and regulate it, they start to manipulate it. They start to manipulate it. Bad things happen. Well, very interesting stuff. I I think it's, first of all, it's amazing detective work on your part. That really, I mean, I if I had come across this after following those different steps, and there it is being serialized in that news here, I think my heart would be beating like right through, <laughs> you know, right through my body. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh my gosh, I am on the cusp of a discovery here. That's yeah. really, really amazing. It's like being the first person to read this in over 120 odd years, 130 years, because we have letters where Spooner's friends uh, read this and responded to it. There are some newspapers in Boston that make reference to it. They say uh, Mr. Spooner has a new monetary treatise out, and they give a very, very rough overview of what it contains. But this has been in- inaccessible since at least the turn of the century. So uh, the first time I-, I open this and start poking through it, and I see Scottish free banking. Wait a minute. Hayek was talking about that in 1978. Here's Spooner a century before him using this great example. That's really that's really amazing. I mean, it, the only thing that comes close in my case was it had nothing to do. It was not anywhere approaching the detective work you did. I just almost literally stumbled upon it. I was in the stacks in the library in grad school, and I was looking for something, and I came across a box in the stack. So naturally, you see a box, you open it. Yeah. <laughs> I opened it up, and in there was a series of old pamphlets on various political questions from the early 19th century. And one of them was Abel Upshur's commentary on nullification. Oh, he, wow. Yeah, I mean, he had <laughs> been a uh, uh, cabinet official, but he had also written a systematic reply to Joseph Story. Yep, so, you yep. know, n- not a small figure in the history of, uh, you know, I mean, obviously in the typical textbook, he's a pretty small figure. But to me, he's a pretty significant guy. And to see this and realize no one has seen this in forever, and I started looking at it, and it's really powerfully written. So I took it, and I ended up uh, reproducing it in the appendices of my book, Nullification. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that brought it to the to the light of the world. But it wasn't like uh, I knew that he had written this thing, and so I was on a, a quest to find it. I didn't know, you know. I didn't know anything. I, I was a guy who found a box. But the point is, I opened that box, and a lot of other schmucks had gone through there, seen that box, and just walked on by. But Right, right. They yeah, were realizing the, lesson, the significance. Yeah, the lesson is, you see a box, doggone it, you open it up. All right, so how do people get this? So uh, we are releasing it through the American Institute for Economic Research. Uh, should be uh, available on our website, which is AIER.org. Uh, We have a bookshop on there. There's also the other standard way to do it, and that is to order off of Amazon. Uh, So we we put it out as an inexpensive paperback available to – we we want people to rediscover this work. So the idea is to make it as widely accessible as we can at a a minimal cost. 
and uh, reintroduce this line of, of discussion. Actually, it feeds into just uh, everything we're talking about today. Competitive currency is is a big theme of the of the moment in political and economic discussions. Um, as is you know Scottish free banking. Uh, that's a big part of Austrian uh, banking theory that has been developed and debated. So uh, the idea is to make this as widely accessible as we can. But again, say go go to aier.org and check out our bookstore. Or uh, the conventional way is look on Amazon. All right, I'll do both. I'll, I'll link uh, to AIER and I'll also link to the uh, Amazon link at tomwoods.com slash 1274. AIER, I guess, is his title president. Is that what Ed Stringham's title is? Yes, yeah. Okay, Ed Stringham's been a guest a couple of times and I just think the world of Ed. So, um, you know, the fact that under his imprint this is coming out is another feather in his cap too. So uh, I'm glad you guys are doing it. And it's really amazing to think that we've got some more Lysander Spooner to read. How about that? Absolutely. So, so thanks to all you guys. Uh, Tomwoods.com slash 1274 is where to find all this information. And uh, we have to talk now. I mean, now that we've, this was a nice little conversation about a, a hero to libertarians and some new material and it's very exciting and scholarly. Now we got to get back to smashing bad guys because I know you're good oh, yeah. at this. And I know you take as every bit as much pleasure in it as I do. So let me know when you have some good juicy stuff and we'll do that again. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Phil. All right. Thanks again. All right, folks. A couple things here. I somehow, it's a long story. Uh, We fell behind a bit this week with an episode. So we're going to be releasing one on Saturday because I'm going to keep my commitment to you folks. So one will be coming on Saturday, then a bonus episode on Sunday with a descendant of Patrick Henry. Very interesting. But anyway, really the most important thing I want to tell you about is I have a listener who I love how my listeners are knowledgeable and skilled in so many different areas and areas I know nothing about and probably will never know anything about. And I have a listener who just started a site, huntandcookwildgame.com. And there she's promoting an ebook called The Complete Field to Table Guide to Bagging More Game, Cleaning It Like a Pro, and Cooking Wild Game Meals Even Non-Hunters Will Love. And the key to phenomenal tasting game meat, she says, doesn't start in the kitchen, but in the field. So the book is filled with tips, tricks, and strategies, along with outstanding recipes. And the bonus cookbook features recipes written by recent MasterChef contestant Tenoria Askew. Gordon Ramsay described Tenoria's shrimp and grits dish as the best he's ever had in the MasterChef kitchen. And she's contributed several recipes exclusively for this bonus cookbook. Hunters of all levels will benefit from this book. And there's an exclusive bonus for Tom Woods listeners, the ultimate pre-hunt gear and preparedness checklists for bow, rifle, upland bird, and waterfowl hunting. Be safe, be comfortable, and be prepared with these done-for-you checklists you can print and use over and over again. So just forward your receipt to support at huntandcookwildgame.com to pick up your bonus. So again, the website to pick this up is huntandcookwildgame.com, and all the details I just laid out will be over at tomwoods.com slash 1274. Thanks for listening. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.